Welcome to the Equipping Webinar, where we connect discipleship, theology, and apologetics to everyday life. Welcome to the Equipping Webinar, where we connect discipleship, theology, and apologetics to everyday life. My name is Nathan, and I'm the Director of Equipping and Apologetics here at Watermark Community Church. And today we are going to talk about the early church, and not just the early church, but primarily what was the early church going through from a doctrinal standpoint in regard to the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit, how did the church come to believe in what we now hold as Orthodox Trinitarian doctrine. But before we get into that, I want to introduce everybody to you. So just like always, Kirby Wagner is to my right. Good to be with you guys. Kirby, what's up? I feel like the last month you've really gotten your teaching legs under you. I feel like you've like you've taught quite a bit of stuff. Training day, mm-hmm. women's Bible study, stuff like that. So it's been fun. Yeah. Kept me busy. Totally has. <laughs> Nothing like doing a class every day, though. Yeah. It's 75 minute class every day. Mm-hmm. Well, you're doing a good job. And I would also use this opportunity to just let you know if you are a woman who would like to get involved in women's Bible study, you can check them out. And then also that training day that you did last mm-hmm. weekend. What was the title of the class? The Feminist and Feminine. Yeah, yeah. So you and Christy and Anne, and uh, that's a great class to check out as well. I would encourage you guys to do that. And then we also are privileged to have in the studio with us, Karen Henson, who is our equipping fellow this year. Hey, everyone. It's so good to be here with you all. Yeah. Karen is homegrown, like grew up, what, 10 minutes north of here? 10 minutes. I thought you were about to say 10 minutes ago. (laughs) She grew up 10 minutes ago. Really, really young. Yeah. Well, this might be a growing up experience for you too, you know? So So whatever. But Karen is a recent graduate of Dallas Seminary and came on staff with us as a fellow this year. And we're excited to have you, Karen. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And then we are privileged to have the... Dr. Scott Harrell in the studio with us today. He got his master's of theology and a doctorate in theology at Dallas Seminary and is currently a professor there of theological studies. Um, I took Dr. Harrell's Trinitarianism class when I was a student there, which was a long time ago. If you're, well, you can't see me, but I have gray hair. (laughs) And, and, uh, but one of the things that I love, I mean, I go through all his academic accolades and all that stuff, but probably the biggest thing I love about Dr. Harrell is he's been a missionary all over the world. Actually, we were talking before we went live, where it's like, wait, have you written books like in other languages? <laughs> you know, and the answer is yes. Um, so he's been a missionary all over the world and and is a pastor and uh, is not just one of these ivory tower guys that just does academic work and doesn't relate to people, but really is in the trenches with people. And I've always respected that, that about you, Dr. Harrell. So welcome to the webinar. We're, we're glad you're here. It is a delight uh, and uh, an honor to be with you, yeah, Nathan. Thank I you. love it. So tell us a little bit about how did you get here, You know, your, your family? What are some things you've got going on right now? Well, long, long ago, born in a place called Ephrata in Washington State. It looked like Bethlehem. Somebody named it that about a century ago. Nice. And uh, grew up kind of between farm and other places. Uh, did school in Seattle. Began to go out to different parts of the world. YWAM into the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, with Indians on Vancouver Island with a different group and uh, different places. And more and more, the Lord was uh, moving us toward toward missions. Mm. Went through DTS, Dallas Seminary, and we wondered where in the world to go. Brazil had so many missionaries already, but my wife had had a couple years there. Her folks were there as missionaries in the huge city of Sao Paulo, and. Uh, that finally won out, surprisingly. Mm. I thought, what, you've got 
5,000 missionaries already. What should I, why should I go there? Yeah. But, but we went to the far south, the European south, and uh, began a church planting, and that evolved into teaching at several schools. I was head of theology at the, the large Baptist Theological Seminary of Sao Paulo. We launched a journal. It became the largest Protestant journal in Latin America. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, I think had significant influence uh, throughout the country. So uh, there comes a time when missionaries need to get out of the way. Mm. Brazil had come of age, and while the welcome was still there, it was time we sensed that. Time on. to move on. Yeah, yeah. so thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, so I've been to Dallas Center ever since, <laughs> launching into Africa from that, and uh, various places too. I love it. So I thanks. love it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, one of the great things is, as uh, I said, I took his Trinitarianism class, and that's, that is one of your uh, kind of subject specialties. So um, we're going to, we were uh, formulating this as more of like a history of Christian thought over the last 2000 years. And then as we were having conversations around this, it was like, actually, let's focus in on that first 400-ish years. And, uh, and then we'll tackle the rest of the history of Christian thought, maybe an, another webinar or two. But today we're going to just talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. What did that look like in becoming what it is today? And so I think a great place to start is just first century Judaism. I mean, uh, when you read the Old Testament, obviously you see a people who are devoted to God as God had revealed himself to them through the patriarchs and the Exodus and and then um, uh, through the the prophets and the kings and and through all of that you see especially in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 this famous Shema and Shema is just the word to hear so hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one and so you have this really strictly monotheistic people in the first century. So un unpack that for us, Dr. Harrell. What would a first century common Jew, what would that person have believed about God? We have a lot of pieces coming together with that, uh, even going back to that, because Muslims often cite that as saying, your God can't be Trinity, because mm -hmm, right. he's one. Echad, the Hebrew term, comes from the root, a kind of a plural collective togetherness, one. That doesn't, you know, it's like English one. We mm -hmm. come together as one church. Adam and Eve were one flesh, same, same terminology. So uh, there wasn't a sense of, when we say monotheism, at the same time, that isn't too tight. Mm -hmm. As we come down through the centuries, of course, Israel was carried away with some idolatry and was sent to, uh, into their exile in Babylon, came back much more rigidly monotheistic. But even in there, in the Old Testament, whether post-exilic or prior to that, you've got, you've got divine agents. You've got strange terminology going on, like uh, let us create man in our own yeah, image yeah. and things like that. You've got the word of God. You've got the spirit of God. You've got mm -hmm. the wisdom of God. You've mm -hmm. got the angel, angel of, of God. Of the Lord, yeah. You've yeah. got the Messiah. Here's mm -hmm. Isaiah before the exodus or the exile. For unto us a child is born, a son is given— the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gibor, Mighty God. That phrase is only used one other place in the Old Testament. That's a chapter later in Isaiah 10. That's mm -hmm. Isaiah 9, 6, what mm -hmm. I just quoted. But who is this child born, this human being? The government will be on his shoulders. Uh, it's the Davidic promised person, and yet, mm -hmm. and yet Mighty God? How does that work? So as we come into the first century, you've got You've got ambiguity around around the one God they worshipped. Mm -hmm. So 
let me say this. Recent scholars like Daniel Boyarin, Benjamin Sommer, and others, these are rabbinic Jewish scholars, are mm. saying, hey, the idea of this Jesus being called God was part of the mix. There, there was a large plurality of understandings in the first century. You have apocryphal works like First Enoch, Third Enoch, and other places that also, like that son of man who comes before the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, they expanded that. Here is this other divine figure giving mm -hmm. glory and honor and an eternal kingdom. Yeah, authority to judge yeah. the nations. Yeah. Yep. And, and yet God doesn't give his glory to another. There's mm -hmm. no God before me or after me. Mm. So, so it was a little more flexible than a lot of people think today. Yeah, because I mean, I think we think of monotheists and and it's just almost like more of more of an Islam type, you know, there cannot be any kind of plurality or anything, just one. And uh, and yet <laughs> just all the stuff yeah. you just said, what about all of that stuff that's going on? So the common first century Jew post obviously post exilic and living in a increasingly pluralistic society with the Romans there and the Greek influence. And I mean, what, when they went to synagogue on Saturday, I mean, their concept of God, what would that have been? Um, well, surely the one God, they were monotheists in the, in, in the midst of a pluralistic mm -hmm. syncretistic world. They had to fight for that. Right. And so we're not budging on that. And yet there wasn't the idea of an individual the idea of person really evolved out of Christianity, mm -hmm. using that term later on. Mm -hmm. So as a number of scholars said, there's kind of an ambiguous plurality in the one person of God. Now, some were much more rigorously against that, mm -hmm. but the fact that the early church could then turn to worship Jesus is quite extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, which leads into that, to our next question is how in the world, why, why did those same Jews begin to worship God the Father and then also worship God the Son. Yeah, well, you have some plurality going on there again. You're asking two questions in one sense about God the Father, but let's go to God the Son for just a minute. Mm. It is interesting that even the Magi show up worshiping, and in that term worship, there's some elasticity. But when, when Jesus walks on water, Peter gets out there and walks with him in Matthew 14, and they sit down in the boat. Here are Jewish believers who bow down and worship him. Mm -hmm. Now, Matthew written, especially to Jews, it seems, yeah. that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. And yeah. We, we get a little further and, well, you see others worshiping our, our Savior as well. So yeah, it ends like that in Matthew well, 28, you know, uh, they, they worshiped him <laughs> before he gives the commission. I often ask in my classes, did Jesus ever explicitly say he was God? And if he did, mm -hmm. What circumstances were those in, mm. those statements in? And, and at first, Jesus didn't go around proclaiming himself God, and yet everything he did led that way right. as the Son of God. Mm. So when did he say it? He said it in the teeth of those who wanted to kill him repeatedly. Mm. You know, John 8, they've been arguing a whole chapter. And then he says, before Abraham was, mm. I am. Mm -hmm. And it's so... Just even listening to you, that can be lost on people who may not have the right understanding of the Old Testament. If you say, I am, what does that mean? If Jesus is claiming, I am, like, what's the background behind that? Good point. Exodus 3 is where the angel of the Lord in the burning bush uh, gives us probably the most sacred revelation of God in the, old, in the whole Old Testament. I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that I am, I am, is a way of translating the sacred name Yahweh, mm -hmm. or, 
what is called the Tetragrammaton, four letters of Hebrew that are the, the absolute center of who God is. So when Jesus says things like that, they took up stones to kill him. Yeah, yeah, there's no ambiguity there. He's, yeah, yeah, yeah they're trying to kill him, yeah. So the early church begins to worship Jesus the Son. What connectors do you see between the life of Jesus and the early church in Acts grasping this concept of, because it's even fascinating, there's tension even in Matthew 28, because some of them worship him, but others of them doubted. Yes. So talk about that for a minute. What tension was there? Well, Jesus, you know, he's this incognito God who comes to us. That's Kierkegaard's way of talking. Hmm. Here's a, here's a, child born to a, a su- in suspect circumstances, uh, then fleeing into Egypt and all that. He comes back to Nazareth, that know-nothing town of Nazareth. And, and it's like, well, who is this, this man who has fishermen mm. as his followers and tax collectors and others? Mm. So Jesus let, there's such beautiful mystery here, I think. Jesus lets the truth of who he is sink in on other people. He doesn't go around, and second, or Philippians 2 says this very clearly, saying, hey, I'm God, you've got to worship me. Rather, mm-hmm. rather he finally asks, uh, who do people say that I am? Mm-hmm. To, of course, Peter, mm-hmm. uh, who do you say that I am? So it's subtly sinking in. How can a human being be God? That's, mm-hmm. that's the astonishing thing of it all. And yet they begin to look at the Old Testament again. Now, let me throw in one more, Zechariah 12, 10. Here's Yahweh speaking, and he says, And they will look upon me whom they have pierced, pierced yeah. and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, mm. for a firstborn. Well, who's the him, and how do you pierce Yahweh? Yeah, right. So, the truth of the Old Testament was slowly seeping in, and Jesus told them it would. Yeah. So he said, you're going to have new lenses now to read the Old Testament. So, he was just less obvious than maybe we would have anticipated him to be. And even in the way that he lived his life with uh, healing the blind, with setting captives free, everything, every action that he had was absolutely fulfilling what the Old Testament said of the Savior to come. And so while we look at it, we're like, why isn't he sitting on a throne saying, I am God, mm-hmm. worship me? But yeah, why didn't he go to Rome and take Caesar's exactly. seat? Yeah, yeah. But it's so obvious when you're able to understand it with the Old Testament. It does come alive, doesn't it? Yeah, I think there's an interesting point there. I mean, I, you know, as an apologist, I get that question a lot of times from skeptics is, hey, you know, if Jesus really was God, why the ambiguity? Why conceal things? Why not Why not shout it from the mountaintops? And as soon as he's born, you know, uh, the baby cries and in between cries, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, you know, like, why not that? I mean, and yet I think that what's what's fascinating is you look at the Gospels and the times where things do explicitly happen, like at his baptism, right? One of the accounts says that a voice came out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son, you know, like, where's the ambiguity in that? And yet the people who heard it, some of them heard it and others of them said, was that thunder? There's just in the, um, in the midst of this, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, yeah, even if he would have been overt in this in every way that people would have necessarily believed that just doesn't connect because people, God is in front of their face and they don't believe. A lot of people kept trying to ask him, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you mm-hmm. the Messiah? And Jesus would sidestep that mm-hmm. over and over. Mm-hmm. And where it really came to a head is in that secret meeting or that midnight meeting of the Sanhedrin. Yep. And they're so frustrated because he won't say anything. Right. And finally, the high priest says, I adjure you in the name of the living God, are you the son of God? Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, 
You said it. Mm. And then he says, and when you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and they went wild, yeah, because there yeah, was a yeah. passage in Daniel 7, yep. that's the one we talked about. That, totally. That Son of Man given an eternal kingdom who all nations will worship. And they went crazy, and mm. that that. It's what got him yeah, crucified was, in one sense. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's a great point. I was teaching a class just a week ago talking about Jesus' claims about yeah. himself. And I just said, hey, guys, I, there's something really beautiful about this because they were really frustrated. And I think you could make a strong case to say that Jesus actually had to help them condemn him. I mean, he hmm. could have he could have kept his mouth shut, he you know, could've. and who knows what would have happened, but he doesn't. And there's a lot of irony dripping off that, too. Right. Because Caiaphas, the, the judge of this secret trial or mock trial, whatever, it's not even a trial, but um, mm-hmm. whatever it is, Caiaphas, who's sitting in judgment of Jesus and Jesus answers him by saying, hey, man, I'm going to judge you one day <laughs> and all the rest here <laughs> and everybody else. So, that, yeah, that there's a lot of um, yeah, it's just ironic. But talking about that, I mean, he uses son of man, son of God. And so how would people have heard that term? Did it necessarily mean divinity? What What's kind of the range of meaning there is Jesus? Yeah, son of God has a lot of spokes coming into the, the axis. Yeah, the yeah. Axle in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Because angels are, are called sons of God. Uh, that Messiah would be adopted as as the son of God, but that was largely assumed to be the, the physical son of David, mm-hmm. and Davidic uh, hope for, for Israel. But son of God had other implications as well, and obviously Jesus took it to the highest mark. When he, mm-hmm. when he combined son of God, son of man, that brought the highest meaning of both sides. Mm-hmm. Now, we're called sons of God. Yeah, and daughters of God. Yeah. So, so there's a there's there's an ambiguity there, and uh, one of the big questions in a lot of theology and missions has been in the last ten years: How do you translate "Son of God" in Muslim idiom translations? Mm. Somebody picks up the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. A Muslim will say, "I'll put it down. I yeah, can't read that. Right, That's right, blasphemy." Right, right. So, how do you translate mm. that that term? Not easy. N.T. Wright, in his book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, talks about three primary meanings there. One is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, who there's no, uh, if you're just talking about the Messiah, you're just talking about a man, you know, just the son of David. And uh, he's like, so in that sense, that it retains that meaning that he is the son of God. And yet, I think, too, in the the political climate of the day, the the society, the other son of God was Caesar, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, it, that was on the coin. <laughs> Indeed it was. Yeah. And so um, I, I think that the fact that Jesus calls himself son of God is also an affront to the the power structures in Rome, you know, like, because I think the early church picked up on this and said, he's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's also the king of the world. And then thirdly, and I think this is what kind of we uh, will dive more into today is this this idea that actually the Son of God is this Daniel 7 Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days who is himself divine. And uh, I've always uh, thought that those three categories were interesting in they're that helpful, in yes. that it's they're distinct from one another, but the term encompasses all of them. And uh, yeah, I found that to be helpful. When it really starts to bring clarity to passages like Acts 1, where Jesus is being raised into the heavens and his disciples are like, all right, now's the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going to set up the kingdom. And so it makes sense when you start to understand the background between some of the terminology that's being used. They they obviously would have thought like, yeah, now's the time 
time you're going to mm-hmm. come rule here on earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, the understanding of the kingdom of God and and how that works itself out for sure. So if the Father is God and the Son is God, then who in the world is the Holy Spirit? Oh, we're gonna, <laughs> all right. Uh, well, the Holy Spirit, of course, was that agent of God, finger of God, power of God, presence of God in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So everybody knew exactly what it was. Some were well, in fact, as uh, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the commentaries I just read this last week was that uh, maybe the Sanhedrin was filled with jealousy because mm-hmm. they wanted that power and presence of God. And yet, what are these fishermen yeah, from right. Galilee? Yeah, these unlearned are. men, yeah, yeah. But it took time for that to sink in, too. Of course, you have, you have the baptismal formula that Jesus gave us. We're to baptize in the name, mm-hmm. singular, the Hashem, or the sacred name, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And we see times, even in Matthew, there's some fascinating accounts that, that uh, show the place of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Matthew, Jesus healed the blind, mute, demon-possessed man, and the, the religious leader said, that's that's Beelzebub, that's, that's demonic power working, mm-hmm. Jesus goes on. And he says, well, you can blaspheme the Father, and you can blaspheme the Son, but you dare not blaspheme the Holy Spirit, or you'll not be forgiven in this life or the life to come, or mm-hmm. the age to come. Mm-hmm. Whoa. Well, mm-hmm. now, who's the Holy Spirit if yeah. you can blaspheme the Father and the Son? Yeah. So the, the reality of the Spirit is kind of seeping in. Mm-hmm. The Spirit desires to glorify Christ and the Father. So it's often said, well, that's what he was doing. Uh, he doesn't seek to bring glory to himself. Mm-hmm. But as we begin to see that the attributes that are the Father's and the Son's are the Spirit's, the activities are his, the titles, he's the Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of the Son, Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. We go on through all of that, and soon we see what nice see a much later said mm. he is worthy of worship and glory just as are the father and the son yeah and i think it's hard for people you know including myself to really grasp and put skin on that concept because we you know god is father you say that you're like oh well i mean everybody has a father whether he's in your life or not like you have a father or you see other people's fathers and we get the concept of son because if you're a male then you're somebody's son i mean I, i'm a son i'm a I'm a dad as well, so I have my son. Those are, as we kind of construct our image of God in our own minds, those are easier things to grab hold of and to put to put skin on. But I think a lot of times people hear the word spirit, and just like we were joking, you know, a minute ago, like uh, sometimes people are, think of the spirit as like, well, is this like this wind, you know? <sighs> Here comes the spirit, you know, (laughs) or there's like this kind of ethereal out there kind of it's hard to. And so what would you tell somebody about how do we think about the spirit in in relational terms in the same way as the father and the son? You know, when you start looking at the spirit and all he does and says, it, the personality, the, the the full reality of the spirit, not just being a force, like some of the cults mm-hmm. would say, mm-hmm. but really personal. I mean, he, he tells the church, you know, set aside for me, Saul and Barnabas. Mm-hmm. You see the spirit, this other counselor or advocate, that word other, that Jesus talks about mm-hmm. him and presents him in many ways, uh, that means one of the same kind. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is called that parakletos. Mm-hmm. So now Jesus is presenting the spirit four times as that parakletos, as it would be in the Greek. There's, uh, there's this other one like Jesus. Now, if the son is personal, so is the spirit. And we see that, we see that increasingly. 
uh, as we walk through the book of Acts. Uh, I mean, it seemed mm-hmm. good to the Holy Spirit and to us as they concluded the yeah. Jerusalem Council. All kinds of times when you see the Father say, I am, you see the mm-hmm. Son say, I am, and you see the Spirit speak many times as I, as me. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can insult the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. Mm-hmm. You don't grieve a radar beam, like Jehovah's Witnesses portray the Spirit. You grieve someone who loves you. Mm. And when we sin against God, we grieve the Spirit. Yeah. So there's a lot of pieces that come together to show the Spirit really is mm. personal. And He, the Lord, is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. He's called Lord. Mm. And so... Uh, it's kind of by reflecting on who is Jesus. If Jesus is really God, and there's not two gods but one God, then how do we understand the Spirit? Yeah, the yeah. church struggled with that. Yeah, yeah, and I think today a, a lot of times I uh, commonly hear just phrases that people use in talking about the Spirit, and they use utilitarian language as if um, the Spirit is something to be used. Hmm. Um, so we're going to do this, and and somehow um, whether it's a a certain way to stir up the spirit or how, like, how do we get the spirit going so that, you know, these things can happen. And I think that in a lot of ways is just, it just diminishes the personhood of the spirit. Mm -hmm. The spirit is as much a person as the father and the son. Absolutely. And it becomes something that you tap into. Like that's the language Mm -hmm. that they start to use. If we're going to tap into this to get some release of power. Right, right, right. Yeah. Again, utilitarian type language. Yeah. I know one of the things that was really helpful for me and a lot of, a lot of times uh, this is the way doctrine really gets clarified for people is other people start to say things that are not true. (laughs) And so it's like, well, how do we know this is this? Well, we know this is this, we know it's not that over there. And we know it's not that. And in that process of knowing that it's not that the doctrine gets clarified. And so walk us through some of the early Christian heresies in regard to the Trinity, what they were and how they got clarified. Well, that's good, uh, because those heresies of old are alive and well today, all around (laughs) us, really. Well, one group was called the Ebionites, from the word poor. They were kind of uh, the extremely ascetic uh, uh, Jewish people, like the Qumran community, the Essenic community. They... There weren't many of them. We don't know much about them, but with the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel, some of them fled to the upper Nile in Egypt. And they lived in very humble circumstances. Their position was that Jesus is like John the Baptist. He's not God. Uh, he probably didn't rise from the dead. He's just a prophet to be listened to. Mm. Not un- unlike what Islam says today, mm. uh, and and what some liberation theologians and others said that yeah. make him a, a great hero, a wise teacher, and yeah, all the rest. Yeah. Uh, then there was another group on the other side. If those are the Jewish ones that rejected Jesus, there are others who said uh, from, the, from the Greco-Roman world, well, he's like a phantom. He's, he's a kind of emanation of God. They were called docetus. It's kind of Gnosticism. That is, he, he, uh, he walked on the sand, common illustration, but he left no foot, footsteps. Lots of stories, Gnostic gospels and things like that that come out with all of this. Real quickly, I'm going to interrupt you. Um, help us understand where did, uh, I think you mentioned ebion means poor. Yeah, yes. But talk to us about where, what's dokeo, I think is the word. And and talk to us about well, 
to appear. Yeah, yes. to appear yeah. is that. But talk to us about. Give us a brief. What is Gnosticism? Well, not that's that's a big one. Gnosticism was one of the controlling paradigms of kind of the Platonic world of gods and emanations and all of that. Uh, but Docetism was, as every major religion does today, trying to appropriate Jesus and stick him into their own system. Mm. So for them, Jesus was was like some of their other gods. He was a power, a very wonderful power, but he wasn't really human because the, the world we live in for them was considered evil. Mm. And so he couldn't be human to be really God. Mm. And yet not God quite as the high God for them was almost impersonal. So there was a lot of Gnostic heresies that came about in the second and third centuries, mm. and those were roundly rejected by Christian faith as well. Yeah. How do we know about these people? What are some of the sources that... Well, very good. Yes. Uh, actually, because the church fathers we do listen to, Irenaeus and others, were writing against Marcion and other so-called uh, heretics, what we call heretics today. Mm -hmm. They were all trying to figure it out, but some were being more faithful to the Bible than others. But yeah. we know mainly about these. We have some of their writings, but but through through what other Christian fathers have said about them. So we know the yeah from from Irenaeus the the Ebionites were kind of the Jewish sect that denied the deity of Jesus and the Gnostics were the ones who everybody else that denied the humanity of of Jesus. We know a lot, a lot more right? about yes, and we know yeah. a lot more about that latter category yeah. than, than the Ebionites themselves. Yeah. yeah, Irenaeus wasn't he wasn't he didn't have a short pen on those guys. No, no <laughs> certainly not on the Gnostics. Yeah, how true. <laughs> I was reading Irenaeus the other day in page after page you after were. page after page. Yeah. So any, anyway, you guys tell what I do in my spare time. Hey, also, casual it, reading. <laughs> right. So you have the Ebionites yes. and, the, and the Docetists. And uh, what, what else was out there? Well, Ebionites, Jesus is just a man. Docetist, no, he's God. He's not man. Mm -hmm. And so it got a little more sophisticated. There's what's called adoptionism, various forms of it. But that is that Jesus was a really good prophet, good man, and God adopted him as his son or Lord, just a normal person like you and I. But then whether it be at the baptism or whether it be at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him, mm -hmm. Peter, James, and John, or whether at the resurrection, they wanted to make him divine in some sense. But he didn't start out as an incarnation. He was one who was infused with the presence of God such that God adopted him. Now, that kind of theology is around quite a lot yep. today Yeah, well. totally. Yeah, I was just actually fairly recently had a conversation with someone who was an adoptionist. Uh, people don't know what to call it. And they, sure, a lot of times they don't sure. even know that there's a history there. But um, around what, what are the timetables of these? I know Ebionism is very early. Docetism is very early. Around what time did, did adoptionism start to... Well, you're dealing really with did. you're dealing with a, a Roman Empire where Christianity was uh, at least persecuted mm -hmm. off and on to mm -hmm. various degrees. So they weren't texting one another. And how do we get this right? <laughs> you know, and so you've got you, Ebionism clearly in the early uh, second century, probably uh, really late first century, yeah. and Docetism already. John is writing his epistles. What we've seen, heard, touched. This is what we declare to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you test the spirits? Did did, did the Son, Jesus Christ, come in the flesh? Mm -hmm. So already you see kind of a prescient Gnosticism, a beginning of Gnosticism mm -hmm. or Docetism enter in. Yeah. So those are first, late first and second century, and really they they scatter out a little bit, but yeah. lose momentum. Adoptionism more toward the end of the second century and into the third century, mm -hmm. and a lot of other uh, ideas about who is this Jesus as well. Yeah. What's really important is to know that 
one of the main rails for orthodoxy to, to define who is God was that baptismal formula mm. in the name of the Father, mm -hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. They mm -hmm. didn't understand it all. Their experience was clearly Trinitarian right from the outset, right. but they didn't have the categories to explain it. So already by the late second century with Anagoras, Theophilus, and a little bit later with Irenaeus, you have the language Trino, Trina. They're mm -hmm. talking about three in one mm -hmm. in some way. Really, Tertullian around 200 said, no, God is as Trinity, uh, one substance, three persons. So yeah. we're not talking about a later invention. Yeah. We're trying to put it together. Yeah, and I think what's fascinating to me, talking about the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, is... One, there's no textual variant there. It's not like there's something that was, oh, this was added later, you know, hundreds of years later after Nicaea or something like that. So we have a witness of the gospel that goes back to the the actual historical event itself. You can trace it back in various ways. So there's really no there's really no reason that would cause us to doubt the authenticity, at least of what Matthew was writing. We know that he wrote that. And then talking about Paul's letters that he wrote early on and the book of James, which was written very early on, divinity was not it was almost something that Paul and the writers of the New Testament were assuming. It wasn't, it wasn't like they were writing a treatise to establish divinity. They were just reporting that that's the way it is. Exactly. And uh, I think that's a really fascinating deal when people start to think about, hey, how was, was Christianity, and we'll get to this question in a minute, was Christianity just one of these many competing idea belief systems that just happened to like went out because one guy, this Irenaeus guy, ha people happened to read his writings. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's kind of a forest growing up of right. those who qualify in the broad sense for orthodoxy. One thing that's surprising, I, this has been one of my areas of research, how many times does the New Testament bring Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together? Hmm. That is God, Christ. You can use a lot in of different terms. Yeah. Uh, at least 130 times. Wow. One, you know, you're reading the scriptures and you don't think about it because mm -hmm. we're so used to this language, but yeah. it's much more dense in the scripture. Mm -hmm. And we see it in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah 63 and other places mm -hmm. are, are amazing where God is called Father and then Savior and Redeemer and then Holy Spirit twice who wow. grieves over Israel. There's a lot more there than meets the eye. Yeah, one of the popular critiques is, you know, Trinity's not, you never find it in the Bible. <laughs> Like, yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> a lot, kind of actually. Wrapped up in that specific word when the reality is like passage after passage is Trinity. They didn't need the word. It's mm -hmm. it's written all over the pages. Yeah, totally. And we do the same thing today. We create terms and definitions to help Good. us describe what we already know to be true. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's important to note what you noted a second ago, Dr. Rell, was they're trying to get language to put on this. It's not like the, that language necessarily existed already. And so there's descriptors, in, in, but the category was something that was like, okay, we're trying to describe this that's been revealed to us through through Jesus, the Messiah. Yeah. And so you see that as well is, is uh, the, the language develops over time in, in regard to this. So um, you have Ebionism, Docetism, Adoptionism. What, what's another one that was out there? Well, one is called modalism. At least that's what we call it today. That's where they wanted to protect the oneness of God. But they wanted to also recognize that, well, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So modalism had more than one form, but essentially said God's one person, but he manifests himself in different ways mm -hmm. or puts on masks in different ways. Yeah. And so he shows up as the Father, like in the Old Testament a lot, or certainly as Jesus talks about him, and then 
the Son, and especially in the epistles, that, that God, one God, becomes the Holy Spirit. And so others were saying, no, you've got too many dynamics going on. You've got the Son praying all night to the Father. Mm-hmm. Who's he praying to? Who's he talking to on the cross? Mm. What happens when he dies? Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got all kinds of reasons to say that, that's not a big enough theology. Mm. But I'm afraid a lot today, one, the Pentecostals, Jesus only, and some others mm. uh, still affirm that kind of theology in kind of a simplistic way. It's like mathematics or something. Yeah, the Father became the Son, he became the Spirit, yeah. and there's one God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what yeah. problem are they trying to solve with that? Well, the oneness of God, and they want to keep it, again, mathematically clean. One God, but just three different yeah. ways. One means one. One means one. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're trying to, yeah. So the last one, which will launch us into the, the councils, but there was a guy, an early, was Arius a bishop? He was a presbyter a, in a presbyter. Alexandria. That's right, yeah. yeah. So tell, tell us about Arius. Well, Arius uh, affirmed that the sun is the first created being through whom God created everything else. So, of course, he reflects the character of God, but he's a second God. He's not really God. And the Bishop of Alexandria, was really Alexander of Alexandria, he mm. loved these names, yeah. and his uh, younger, <laughs> younger, uh, I suppose, protege, Athanasius, mm. that said, no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. That is exactly not right. And that became, as Constantine was coming into power all over the Roman Empire, that became an issue that was dividing the church. Mm-hmm. Because Arius didn't stick around Alexandria, he headed to uh, to Jerusalem, Caesarea, and yeah. other places as well. I'm going to go preach over here. Yeah. And so yeah. it's it's easy to think that kind of theology, if you take very literally, that, that this is the Son of God, as though God has an offspring. Right. And quite the contrary, Athanasius and others were arguing, no, that's not right. So Arius basically held then position rejected by the church, but what is parallel at least in this respect, to Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. and others today, mm-hmm. that Jesus is a God, a kind of second God, but not not of the same substance, not equal to God the Father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so walk us from the controversy with Arius to the first ecumenical council. Where, yeah. where was that? What was it about? Kind of all that stuff. Yeah, good question. Uh, Constantine was uh, became emperor in the West uh, and conquered Rome and then finally into Constantinople, which is Istanbul today. So around 324, he had total power. But during that, he had had a vision by the sign you'll conquer, and that was the sign of the cross. And there seems to be some kind of a conversion in his life. Mm-hmm. And and with his edict, even in the West of Milan, uh, he made Christianity no longer an illegal uh, religion. And in fact, Christians could rest on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Well, he was concerned. Uh, he probably had Osius, a, a Spanish bishop, with him through all of this. He was concerned about the division in the church, and he wanted to bring unity. So he called a council in 325 at Nicaea, which is about 40 miles from Constantinople or mm-hmm. Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And there, we don't know for sure, but around 300 probably came together, leaders of the church, to debate this very subject. Is the sun a creation? Yeah, so the Edict of Milan, uh, the way sometimes I'll, I'll describe it to people is, hey, picture picture a lot of persecution, 
a lot of suppression, a lot of these conversations being had more uh, behind doors, not out in the open. And then all of a sudden, the Edict of Milan just lifts that. There's not at least a uh, systematic persecution by governing authorities. And so for the first time, really, now all these people who have been having these conversations, but again, it's not like it's not the 21st century. They're not texting each other, you know, are now able to come together and talk about this for the first time for the first time ever in 300 years ish so tell us what happened well the 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 council affirmed the one substance of god in the son as well uh, the same as the father Mm -hmm. and they kind of added at the end and we believe in the holy spirit yeah that part wasn't filled in very well. Yeah, and, right. and to be honest, and to be honest, it got messy after that. Yeah. Arius, uh, who was exiled at that point, crept back into the kingdom mm. and uh, within a year had persuaded Constantine of his views. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. sort of like, never listen to your emperors <laughs> to tell you what to believe. Yeah, right. And it took a few decades for the church to figure that out. Yeah. But by the 360s, they were saying, why are we listening to, to emperors tell us what to believe? Mm. Let's go back to the scriptures. Yeah. And so, so they went deeper and deeper with the so-called Cappadocian fathers, mm. yeah, 360, 370, 380, Hillary in the West and others. Uh, both East and West were rising up and saying, no, Trinity is right. There are three persons, one substance. Hmm. And beyond that, uh, 381, you've got the Council of Constantinople, right. where we believe in the one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, hmm. God from God, light from light, very God from very God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father. Mm-hmm. Through him, all things were made. Yeah. So That's that one theology. Oh, yeah. But that one substance is the phrase against Arius. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, much more to the eternal begottenness and, yeah. and of one being with the Father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is the, yeah, mm-hmm. the homoousios. So the creed that was refined in Constantinople, is that what we call the Nicene Creed today? Yes, oh, unanimously. That is what we call the Nicene Creed today, mm-hmm. even though technically it is the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. But that's what guides us. So it began in Nicaea in 325, but then over the next 50 years or so was... Well, yeah, and a lot more was... And and the Cappadocians have often been considered the theologians of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Having determined who is Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God, or God the Son, Mm -hmm. then, well, who is the Holy Spirit who mirrors all of this as well? Mm -hmm. And so this, uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who is worship together with the father and the mm-hmm. son mm-hmm. and so yeah so if we if we zoom there. out a little bit because we've gotten a little yeah. further in the weeds so we're <laughs> we're meeting at this council in 325 it's been a few hundred years since christ and we're starting to ask questions like is jesus human is jesus divine how long has jesus been around is jesus eternal so that is the question that we're starting to establish with phrases like very God of very God, begotten, not made. So we're answering those questions. We move, what, 50 years, you said, and we start to answer the question of who is the Holy Spirit and how does he factor into this? The Holy Spirit had always been in the mix, of course. And there were those way back in the second century, like the Montanists, 
leading into the third century, who who believed Montanus was the new kind of almost incarnation of the Holy Spirit, or at least uh, many of what we see today with the tongues and prophecy and giving all your goods and things like that were, were back then. They were calling everybody else unspiritual, so they didn't become very popular. But that died off with time. But largely the Holy Spirit as a doctrine was not well developed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting in my office in 2017 listening to this. Why do I care about this creed? Oh, well, this creed is really the cornerstone of all historic Christianity. Mm -hmm. This unites us all Mm -hmm. from the Church of India to the Ethiopian Coptic Church, Egyptian, Mm -hmm. all the orthodoxies of the East which are not the same as Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, the Greek, Russian, and you know the, the, the 11 or 12 that come together around that, and Roman Catholicism, and all classical Protestantism, really all evangelicalism, excepting the one Pentecostal. So this is the foundational cornerstone theologically of the church. Mm-hmm. Jesus really is God, so he's big enough in his death on the cross, being our substitute as our human being, and yet being God, his death has infinite value for all mm-hmm. who believe. Yeah. I think, too, there's a, a, just from an apologetic standpoint, I mean, I think there's a common deal, and it's sometimes the way we talk about this, you were you used the word established a, a second ago, and sometimes I think we can be tighter in our language because sometimes the language we use opens up things for critics to be like, see, you established that Jesus was God or you determined that Jesus was God. And a lot of times the skeptics that I interact with don't have a good sense of the history of the development of this doctrine. And so they literally believe some people were just making this stuff up and at Nicaea, they then established or right. determined right. or, and then mm-hmm. and then Jesus became God in the same vein of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, talk to us about what would you say a good response is to that claim that the early Christians just made all this stuff Stuff up. You go back to the scriptures themselves. You have these high Christologies. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Mm-hmm. And we get all the, the prologue of John is just astonishing. Oh, yeah. Everything was created through this one. But that's not the only one. This one who became flesh dwelt among us, and all of that. The only begotten God at the Father's side who makes him known. These are extraordinary high Christologies, Colossians 1, that this this one who is the firstborn, a legal term, the heir of all things, created everything, Mm -hmm. visible, invisible, principalities, powers, everything. He not only created, he sustains. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 1 says the same thing, Hebrews 1, 3. So you have these astonishing statements in the scriptures, which again, generally the biblical authors aren't trying to argue. Mm -hmm. This is revelation from God, already accepted by the church. So these things are guiding, as you have the baptismal formula as well, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are guiding the church to say, well, no, Jesus can't be a second God or or creation. This Son is eternally with the Father. But how does that work between the two? They were working it out, and uh, I think nailed it so beautifully. This they didn't get everything right, but boy, on this one, it's yeah, so you, wonderful. You, yeah, you see this stream of orthodoxy that really, I mean, I think we have a lot of evidence that points it all the way back to the one man, Jesus. Yes. And so the way I described it is picture that stream of orthodoxy and there's little uh, a tributary or something that like branches off of it and tries to maybe establish a new way but dies off. 
and then tries to establish a new way but dies off. And yet the whole time you have this stream of orthodoxy with these various heresies that branch off of it. Um, and some of them, like you said, are still alive and well today and through various names and just new packaging. But that orthodoxy has always been there. And so the way I like to describe it is Nicaea and, and Constantinople was far less a determining event. It was much more of a discovering that this is what we've believed all along. And sometimes that helps when you're interacting with people on this issue to be truer to history. Yeah. And even groping for the right language mm -hmm. to express what is really right, there in the scriptures right, right. to begin with. Because yep. they're finding the words to what they already knew to be true. Right. Right. And experienced. Yes. So I know you mentioned it a second ago, but what did the issue of authority have to, to do with this? Because um, we know the Gospels were circulating, the epistles were circulating. What were people looking to in order to wrestle with this language? Well, already in the New Testament, you have Apollos, you have Paul, others arguing in the synagogue all the time that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God. So you've got, you've got that going on from the Old Testament, but then you have the writings of the New Testament mm -hmm. that are increasingly being circulated. So you have the scriptures and our canon today, that is the 27 books of the New Testament, was largely functionally in place by around 200. Hmm. But at the same time, you had the apostolic tradition. You had yeah. John's tradition, Paul's yeah. tradition, the Petrine or Peter's tradition. You had those who were faithful to what was taught also. Hmm. So I have both of those, the apostolic authority and tradition and the scriptures themselves. Scriptures increasingly took priorities. We get to Nicaea hmm. and Constantinople, hmm. though the apostolic tradition was very important as well. So what's the so what? <laughs> yeah, I, we're, we're coming to the end of, you know, we got about five minutes left. And, and like Karen said a second ago, we're in 2017. We're talking about stuff that happened 1700 years ago. You know, what in the world? Why? To me, this is the most precious doctrine. And that's why it is really the center of everything, the center of Christian faith. Uh, there was a time, a good time. I was even a pastor, young, but a doubter of this doctrine. And, uh, well, personal story. I was I was in Switzerland at a place called Lubri with Francis Schaeffer mm -hmm. and uh, and began to kind of go down in a black hole mm -hmm. of a more philosophic depression mm -hmm. than a, an emotional one. That is, who am I as a human being? Who am I as Scott? Where do I go? I, I, I was studying quite a lot of European philosophy at that time. Who am I and what is human? And a friend said, hey, you need to be looking up. You don't find answers within. Mm. Look up. Come on. And that, that was beautiful. And mm. I thought, well, let's get this straight. I want to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So dug into scriptures myself, mm. reading other things too. And all of a sudden, wow, the Son really is God as the Father is God. And then the Spirit. And, and it became a transformative thing in my life. And now as I look back, when you want to know what somebody believes about their religion, I think the most fundamental question you can ask is, what is your God like mm. before and outside of anything else? Is Allah big enough to be God? Is Krishna or Brahman or, or whatever else you want to call, is that adequate for the one who sustains the universe? Mm. And when you look at Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each loving honoring, glorifying each the other, there is a beautiful, beautiful mm. backdrop to all creation. Mm. He didn't have to create to have somebody to glorify him. Uh, he created out of grace to invite us to enter in. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. But it's by understanding God as truly personal. The Father thinks, the Son thinks, the Spirit thinks. That's why I have a mind and yeah. can articulate in language. Yeah, the Father wills, the Son wills, the Spirit wills. Each shows affections or what we call emotions. Each gives themselves to the other. Each indwells the other. There's a key to mm. my anthropology. I'm indwelled by God, mm. similar, not the same, mm. as to how each member of the Godhead indwells the other. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. The Spirit is in the Son, and the, the Son blows on the disciples and said, receive the Spirit, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, there, it unlocks what I am as a human being. Yeah, it unlocks personhood in the deepest of ways. I think Karl Barth said, we don't understand who we are by looking within, but it's by looking up that we are defined as persons. I'm sure he wasn't the first, and he won't be the last that yeah, says that. Yeah. But that sets me free. And then then my own salvation. Is God big enough to be Savior of the world? What is grace? What happened at the cross? And I said it earlier, but again, if Jesus Christ is both God and man, his death on the cross has infinite value for all who believe. And the Spirit leads us right into that, gives us understanding. Amen. That's a little bit fuller picture of someone who's made in the image of God. That's so good. Well, I'm going to tie us up with a passage that, as I've thought about this, I've I've thought about it a lot uh, on a project that I'm working on, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, which I feel like is probably a reality for all of us um, when you approach the <laughs> when you approach God. But this is Jesus's prayer at the end of John 17. Just out of his mouth, a lot of what you were just talking about. But Jesus prays to his Father. And he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, right? He's praying for us, um, which is really cool. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Again, the mutual indwelling. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you've sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. What in the world? (laughs) I mean, oh, it's so great. I mean, like seriously, God, the father in the son and the father and the son in us by the spirit. And I think that that's the mystery and the beauty of Christianity is that God is not something that we have to parse and put into Trinitarian language and then leave him over there. God is is Trinity that we enter into. Yes. Like we enter into the divine life by the Spirit, through the Son, into the intimacy with the Father. And, and I just want to just encourage our audience. I don't know where you are today. You may have been listening to this and who knows what's going on with you right now, but I am telling you that the Father has loved you and the Son died for you and the Spirit, if you have given your life to Jesus through by grace, through faith, and dwells in you. And 
just know that, that, that God is not someone just to be thought about, but someone to be experienced as we have been brought into the divine life. Man, that was good. <laughs> Thanks, Dr. Harrell. You're, you've been a blessing um, to me, to everybody in this room, to uh, countless others um, all over the world as you've given your life and service to the King. And so I'm grateful for your ministry and, and for your time with us today. So hope you guys have a great weekend and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the equipping webinar, connecting discipleship, theology, and apologetics to everyday life.